Love this podcast? Support this show through the ACAST supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. Lucas and Vincent were not in the mainstream of gay life. I was saving body parts, such as uh, skulls. Doesn't it bother you that he's a fag? You have done me a great service. Now I must service you. And the drugs were, were always a, a cry for attention, for somebody to pay attention to me before I, you know, kill somebody. <laughs> You can imagine what it smells like if you go into a closed room. Something is trying to get inside my body. Yeah, she's female and she's waiting for you in the cabana. And you want to sleep with me. Buckle up, Sodomites, and welcome to the Sinister Sissies podcast, your guide to true crime, horror, and everything man-on-man and macabre. I'm Jared, your master of depravity, staring at the beautiful face of my filthy little slave, Sam Hamilton. I love that you still think I'm beautiful. Well, you know. See, this is an attraction. It it's a convention of the podcast. It doesn't fade over time. No, this is real. You love, <laughs> you're in love with me. I love you too. When yes, actually, when you have some sort of comical thing, I usually notice this. He looks he 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 looks as beautiful as he did when I first snapped him up for the podcast, which was in a room that had very dark lighting. Yeah, so well, yeah, it probably helped. Dim light is good as we get older. Yeah, it was dim. It was red. I felt like it looked great, and it worked. So you know, yeah. Here it's I am. Nice. It's nice. Not going to kill him yet. Um, so we are on for a new true crime episode today. Another serial killer. One of, I think, one of the least known killers that we've looked at. Which is odd because this guy is fucked up. He doesn't have a Wikipedia page. <laughs> we had to do some real research for this one. I had to read a book. Um, Sam had to listen to another book. <laughs> I, I read an article about the book. Okay. <laughs> okay. And I watched the documentary. We are talking about today uh, Richard Rogers, also known as The Last Call Killer. Um, Richard Rogers was convicted of killing two men, but is likely responsible for killing many, many more. By likely, it seems like he almost definitely did, but they can only convict for two. Uh, There's at least a third man, definitely, and then two others, very, very likely, and then multiple, multiple others you could trace to him. What about the roommate? That was my third. Okay, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Just as a a research note, uh, a lot of the information that I'm talking about today came from a book by Elon Green, Last Call, A True Story of Love, Lust and Murder in Queer New York, 
which was released in 2021. See, everyone needs to appreciate this. Jared read a whole bloody book for this episode. I did. You, your dedication definitely goes beyond my like two hours of research. I'd say it's worth it's worth a read. Elon Green has a very particular view of writing true crime, which he mentions in all of his interviews, and in that he doesn't like to focus on the killer. He doesn't like grisly details. Blah 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 blah. Total prude. I know. Yeah, I don't know if I necessarily agree with that, but it was an interesting read. It kind of focuses on the nihilism that was occurring in the early 1990s in the gay scene in New York City, which is kind of interesting, and that kind of sets the scene of these murders. Let's get started with the early life of our killer, Richard Rogers. And unlike most of our killers, he's still alive. Yes, he you is. You could, like, write him a letter or something. Not that you'd want to, but, you know, apparently he loves writing. Does he? Yes, I've got some trivia about his jail activities. <gasps> we should have we should have got him on a call somehow. <laughs> oh, he has. I think he has the last call killer on a call. Yeah, oh, come on. Well, he's never admitted to killing anyone, so that might be a bit of a, a bit of a tough gig. We can just talk <laughs> about the gay scene. Hey, or we, something. Just wanted, we just wanted to chat. We could do a hot or not with like various men. And <laughs> yeah, that sounds entirely appropriate. <laughs> So the early life of Richard Rogers was fairly uh, uninteresting or just nothing to note. He was born in Plymouth, Massachusetts on the 16th of June, 1950. His father was a lobster man, which I, do you know what a lobster man is? Yeah, like a lobster is? fisher. Like he would oh, like, he fished, he okay. would like, yeah, fish for the lobsters. Okay, I, I didn't know what that particular role is with lobsters. Who moved the family to Florida to become a machinist. What's a machinist? That's something I can't answer. Something with machines. In his teenage years, Rogers was described as something of a loner. He was bullied in school because he was viewed as having a very effeminate demeanor, but otherwise he was described by one student as as normal as normal could be. Um, I like when people always say this, like he was really normal, he was like really, he was abused... People, you know, shuttle over him, but otherwise everything was fine. Well, my next line on this is that whilst a teenager, Richard stabbed his neighbour. <laughs> um, we don't know much about this incident or the circumstances behind it, but following this, uh, Richard was institutionalised for a brief period of time before he graduated from high school. Uh, once he graduated, he went to a small liberal arts college in Florida. He graduated in 1972 with a BA in French. I'm sure that was very useful. Yeah, he, he went on to further study and eventually became a nurse. Um, but he was very into this this liberal arts college that he went to, and he uh, frequently returned to the college to help uh, organize alumni events. See, those are the people to watch out for. People who can't let go of high school or uni when it's like long done. Anyone who wears their high school jersey after like 21, I'm like immediately suspicious of. In 1973, whilst working as a teaching assistant at the University of Maine, uh, Richard Rogers would kill his first victim, although he wouldn't receive any repercussions for this. Richard's roommate, Fred Spencer, his body was found uh, next to a local highway, um, having received massive head injuries. Richard claimed that he went to his bedroom and found Spencer going through his stuff. He claimed that Spencer came at him with a hammer uh, and in self-defense, Richards picked up the hammer and then beat Fred over the head repeatedly. He said he didn't have an intention to kill him and thought he was still alive 
after he knocked him unconscious. After that, uh, Richard wrapped the body in a tent and threw it into the woods. That's definitely something someone who just commits a self-defense act uh, does. Yeah, totally. Um, A friend of Richard met up with him when he was in the police station after he'd been arrested for this crime and said that there was still blood on him from his roommate, but there were no defensive injuries whatsoever. Like there was no sign that there was a struggle between Richard and this roommate. He was initially charged with murder, but it was downgraded to manslaughter. There was a trial. Apparently Richard, uh, when he gave evidence at the trial, was incredibly convincing uh, in terms of describing that Fred attacked him and he was acting in self-defense. And ultimately, in this very, very early stage, uh, Richard was found not guilty by a jury of manslaughter by reason of self-defense. Yeah, see, I watched this documentary where it was, it mentioned something about him claiming that the roommate had like come on to him as well. The hammer was consistent, but I read one account that he found the roommate going through his stuff and then I watched the documentary. I forget what it was called. It was on Hey You. It's one of those true crime series. That one said that people thought that they might be together and that he claimed that he came on to him, but the hammer part is consistent. Do you know if that came up at trial or whether that was just things that people were speculating about? I mean, I guess that could have just been speculative. Because I couldn't see anything in terms of the narrative of the trial that that came up. So at trial, it was definitely a self-defense Yeah, it was... Yeah, I mean, the argument in both cases was self-defense. It would just be interesting if... Because there's such such little information about this case. It would be interesting if there was anything said or insinuated about the roommate being in love with him. Yeah. Like in 1973, I'm assuming that people would have been freaked out by the idea of that. And it would have given credibility to his self-defense sort of narrative. Probably. Yeah. I don't, there's not a lot of information about the background of Fred Spencer and whether or not he had a history of violence. Because it does seem on the facts, very, very weird that he was acquitted. Well, especially after, like, dumping the body and doing quite calculated things, like, wrapping it up. He made up an excuse that he was doing laundry at the time he was dumping the body, um, and when his friend questioned on, about it, he said, well, I was only doing half of my laundry, and I'm going to do laundry in another day. So there was there was a lot of thought put into carrying up this crime. And but again, yeah, he was found not guilty. He also had said that he put a plastic bag around his roommate's head, to further knock him out, which that's not self-defense. That's, that's, you're thinking about doing this. It's not like in the heat of the moment, but he got away with it regardless. We often think about like the, the early stage points where someone could have been stopped from doing more harm. And this was definitely, this is 1973. He's recently graduated university, still quite young. And someone could have intervened at this point. He could have been imprisoned. There could have been interventions in place. And it was completely missed. Also, it's odd that because his history of stabbing somebody prior to that, yeah. that was when he was a juvenile, so maybe it was like not on public record or something. Also, something that I realize of all these older cases is how like badly all the police departments are connected with like yeah. fingerprinting and stuff. So yeah. I suppose records in general might not have been very accessible if things happened in different states, etc. I mean, it's pre-internet. They, yeah. It's not like well, an easy electronic thing. Well, I found out that Maine only got like an electronic fingerprinting, digitizing system thing, whatever you want to call it, in like 1999. Yeah, yeah, yeah. This is long before then. This is olden days. Um, we noted that, um, I noted earlier that Richard liked um, to go back to his college um, and there was an interesting event that occurred at his 10-year reunion in 1982. 
Um, at the time Richard attended this 10-year reunion, the body of 22-year-old Matthew John Perio um, was found at uh, a local interstate off the highway. He had been stabbed six times and strangled, um, and then his body was dumped. Piero was last seen leaving a gay bar nearby, and he had such extensive violent stabbings that it had actually severed his heart. We don't have any further evidence to, to connect Richard to this particular death, but a lot of people suspect that when he came back to his college for his 10-year reunion, he also killed this 22-year-old, which is a bit younger than his normal demographic. But, yes, um, this guy, he went for daddies, like Virgil on granddaddies. But this is in 1982, so he's in his 30s yeah. at this stage. So maybe it was just, he, he went for men that was around yeah, his own like age. his peers. Yeah. yeah. Through the late 1980s, uh, Richard ended up studying nursing and eventually moving to New York. Also, he, it's worth noting that he majored in surgical nursing. Yes. Specifically, yes. He enjoys uh, that kind of intricate severing of things. A little context that's kind of much better uh, expressed in the Elon Green book is the state of the gay community in the late 1980s, early 1990s. Um, this is obviously peak AIDS epidemic. There was a feeling of kind of nihilism and cynicism in the gay community. And there was an uptick in crime, not just hate crimes against gay men because of the AIDS epidemic, but kind of gay men uh, attacking and killing other gay men. This was kind of explained in various ways, including this kind of self-hating side of things. But also people were like very you know, they assumed they were going to die sometime soon. So there was kind of like a lot of risk-taking behavior, a lot of drugs, a lot of drinking, lots of very risky sex that often turned into kind of violence and death. And aside from that, in 1990 in New York, there were over 2,600 murders. Yeah. So if you think about that, that's, a, that's several murders a day. There is a lot going on. Peak crime wave times. Yeah. Also worth noting at this time, and we, we've seen this in various cases that occurred, you think of kind of Jeffrey Dahmer or even like John Wayne Gacy, this kind of perception of gay people and violence. There's a lot of police indifference towards that community. You know, sometimes because of outright prejudice, sometimes because they view it as kind of icky and they don't want to investigate any further. But also, particularly at this time in New York, there was this police perception that gay men are pursuing a, a quote-unquote lifestyle and that that lifestyle itself comes with risks you know and that that was viewed as a way of kind of dismissing some of the murders that occurred i know we haven't gotten into like the victims yet but it definitely seems like the, the force needed a massive push to actually yeah. start doing anything yeah and we've seen this a couple of times this this idea of well you know there's risks inherent in this casual sex risk taking and you know you get what you, you you deserve almost is the kind of um, thinking in terms of police. And that that's even when they're not outright prejudiced. And I think Green notes this in his book that like um, there were kind of lesbian uh, police officers on the force that similarly were a little bit dismissive of gay men and kind of of this view that they were putting their lives at risk by taking unnecessary risks. Um, when Richard moved to New York, he um, pursued his desires more in terms of being a gay man. 
He frequently visited a variety of gay bars. One of his most favourite gay bars was a place called the Townhouse Bar, which is also where he would meet some of his early victims. On the 11th of July, 1988, Richard met a man that we only know under the pseudonym Sandy at a bar called the GH Club. Richard asked Sandy if he wanted to come back to his apartment. Sandy agreed. When they got to the apartment, Sandy was given an orange juice. After drinking the orange juice, he promptly passed out. These men just love tranquilizing. Well, again, yeah, this is a commonality that we see this use. I don't believe he used GHB. I think he used another sedative that was found in his apartment. This desire to have sex with unconscious men is such a common theme amongst gay serial killers. And I do not think it's as common amongst heterosexual counterparts. It's kind of a weird... Well, it's probably, I don't know, it's probably got some shame element, which is odd because you would think that having sex with someone who is unconscious is probably a more shameful act. I suppose you're possessing them. They're not judging you by looking at you. I don't know. Yeah, there's an interesting psychology there. Sandy awoke briefly after being drugged um, and he found himself naked with his hands and ankles shackled with dozens of hospital ID bracelets. Um, At this time, uh, Richard was working as a nurse at Mount Sinai Hospital in New York. Sandy tried to scream, and at that point, Richard injected him with something with a needle, and Sandy promptly passed out, which is kind of a a really horrible and horrifying kind of image to have in your head. It's kind of waking up strapped naked to a bed and then someone injecting you and you pass out unconscious. In a dazed state, Sandy was dressed and kicked out of the building. When he finally regained kind of full consciousness about what happened, he went to police. Richard was arrested on the 18th of August 1988, but he would be released on bail just two days later. They did try and prosecute a trial against Richard for the attack on Sandy. I think it was a number of uh, injury-related charges. But because Sandy's recollection of events was hazy, because he was drugged, there was a lot of distrust regarding his story. And in fact, the defense narrative was that Richard rejected Sandy's advances, and that's why Sandy made up this story that he had been drugged. I I feel like that trial would go very differently today with those kind of allegations. Yes. Um, Richard was ultimately acquitted of all charges. Which, once again, odd given that he's had the history of stabbing somebody and killing somebody else um, in the past. So there's already like a strong pattern of violent behaviour, and they're like, oh... Let's not get involved in this gay stuff. Let's just let's just let it let it let it go. So I mean, three three different occasions, right? Yeah. To, to really have identified that like this guy was a potential danger and and it's been missed. Like he at least needed some serious psychiatric help. If things didn't all completely add up evidence wise, mm. clearly there's a pattern. Yeah. Look, if you're if you're wanting a um, definitive answer as to why Richard was doing this behaviour. The unfortunate reality is that we don't know. Yes, he's never admitted it, but he is still alive, so there's always time. Maybe we'll get, like, a deathbed confession. Yeah, it's um, it's kind of the, the vagueness of this case that, that we really don't have a motive. I mean, clearly there was a sexual component to it, but um, we, don't, we don't know anything further. 
Now we get to the the killing spree which uh, Richard is most known for and it came after a series of bodies were found in the early 1990s which were all traceable back to gay bars. The first body that was found was that of 54 year old Peter Anderson which his body was found on the 5th of May 1991, uh, wrapped in green plastic garbage bags. He had been dismembered in various sections and each section had been apportioned off into little garbage bags and then dumped in a, a, a local area. A senior detective who discovered the body noted that there was a precision to the dismemberment that he wasn't used to seeing. And this is a senior detective in New York. I'm sure he's used to seeing kind of uh, organized crime related activity. And he was, you know, I don't want to say impressed, but he was, he noted that it was very distinct how well this man had been dismembered. Our first victim, Peter Anderson, uh, quite gnarly and kind of against type for our killer almost. He was found of his penis inside his mouth. Yeah, so it's making some sort of statement, but we're not really clear on, on what. So Peter Anderson was an investment broker. Uh, he was he was from Philadelphia. We don't know much more about him other than he was a gay man who frequented the townhouse bar. Which was, you know, a bit of a haunt for our killer tonight. It was. Um, and so that's, that's kind of connection back to him. Um, his body on its own, though, didn't seem like much of a pattern. On the 10th of July 1992, though, the body of 57-year-old Thomas Mulcahy was found with three stab wounds to the chest and abdomen. Again, his body was dismembered and placed in various garbage bags. Thomas Mulcahy was a closeted married man, and he also occasionally frequented the townhouse bar. So we were starting to get a pattern there and police were noting these victims and that they yeah. were all gay men. Then the pattern continued. On the 10th of May 1993, the body of 44-year-old Anthony Marrero was found in a dirt road in the Whiting section of Manchester Township. I don't know much about New York, but this is always seen area. He was stabbed six times in the back. Marrero was a sex worker. He was known to solicit in the area um, and he was only identified because of his arrest record. And there was a really sad kind of note in the book about Marrero in that um, no one noticed that he was missing. And when the author contacted his family, they were deeply ashamed that he was a sex worker at the time. A fourth and final body was found kind of at various times between July and August of 1993. They were body parts um, of Michael Sacra, a 55-year-old from Manhattan. These parts were found in two locations on Route 9W, um, which is a, a kind of main highway through New York. His head and arms were in one bag, his legs and torso were in another. They met in Five Oaks, which is like a gay bar in Greenwich Village. And this is when the media uproar started, right? Yeah, this is when um, Richard, well, the killings were first dubbed the last 
call killer. So we have a, a number of bodies that police quickly identified as likely being connected together and likely constituting a serial killing. Um, but the investigation stalled at various points. So there were a number of fingerprints found on different bodies. Three or four prints were found on plastic held by Marrero's body and another on a grocery bag for a particular shopping center. This was tied to Mulcahy because the shopping center was near where Mulcahy used to frequent and all of this tied to uh, Sakara because we knew that he had um, left the Five Oaks gay bar before he died um, and there was a bartender there who said that she had identified that Sakara was talking to a man named Richard and that she thought that she recognized him as a guy that worked at the local hospital. Well, she actually they got her to do like a sketch of him, I think, at one point as well. Yeah. Yeah. But when she was asked to make a kind of solid positive identification, she wasn't able to do so for Richard. And so, you know, they had an early chance in the investigation um, straight afterwards in 1993 to find Richard Rogers and that didn't occur. Richard had essentially gotten away with murder at this point. And in fact, in the years following 1993, which is the last body that we have traceable to him, he was known to make weird little jokes when he went on dates with men. Um, so in 1996, he said to a date that you should be careful who you, are, who you are with because the police are looking for a serial killer. And he said that with a smile and the date said that that freaked him out. And so he's, he left soon after. It's interesting about Killer Tonight because he didn't have that many like signatures, I guess. I mean, I guess he cut up the bodies. Yeah. Apparently he always double-knotted the garbage bags. But I mean, yeah. everyone does you gotta that. you got to be secure. Yeah. yeah. And you drain them of blood. So I guess there is sort of a ritualistic aspect yeah. to it. The case remained cold until about uh, 1999 when Margaret Mulcahy, the widow of the, of the second victim, Mulcahy, um, asked for an update from the local New Jersey State Police and it was actually at that point that the lieutenant in charge started to realize, oh, um, we can send these bags off for a new type of fingerprinting and see if that leads to anything further. So they, they needed a prompt from someone to actually do some police work. I love that it took some prodding for them to, to do something really obvious. I mean, I guess cold cases just get marked down and people forget about them, but... There's a quick fix here. Particularly as at this point in 1999, Maine had started to file their fingerprint records electronically. And so there was able to be a system where they identified the match between fingerprints found at the scene of Mulcahy and the manslaughter of Richard's roommate way back in 1973 and they identified him from that. The case remained cold until about 1999 when Margaret Mulcahy, who was the widow of the second victim, Mulcahy, um, asked for an update from the New Jersey State Police. And weirdly, it was this that kind of like got things in motion. They went, oh, wow, we have a fingerprint system that's digitized now. From this, they were able to deduce that two of the murder victims, because their bodies were all found in the garbage bags, so Marrero and Mulcahy, 
both had the same fingerprints on their bags. And that, that tied directly back to Richard because his fingerprints were in the system from the previous altercations that he'd had with police. So on the 28th of May 2001, uh, Richard was arrested whilst working at Mount Sinai Hospital. Do you want to hear like a funny story about this? <laughs> Apparently they had, were doing like a full-scale surveillance operation on him and they were obviously going to arrest him soon. But the reason that he got arrested that day, I was reading, it was because, what was that? You know, the old mayor of New York, Giuliani? Apparently his mum was at the hospital and there were like safety fears because she was at the same hospital. Oh, really? As so that's the, why as they the, prompted. As the killer. And so instead of like keeping up the surveillance, they just arrested him then. Ah, oh, there yeah. you go. This is and, before he rose to prominence as well. This is right before 9-11. And this is like a an elderly woman who definitely yeah. wasn't the... <laughs> His type. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> That's crazy. They, um, so they arrested uh, Richard and they searched his home. There they found a bottle of Verst, which is a sedative commonly used as a date rape drug. Um, they found rug fibers consistent with those found on uh, Mulcahy's body. They also saw several photographs of unknown men on which stab wounds had been drawn. Yeah, it was kind of weird. I saw the photos. They mm. kind of looked more like when you get plastic surgery, like those marks that doctors give you. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But obviously he was like having surgical fantasies because that was his life. We've was, actually... it a, was it a sexual fetish for surgery? Is well, that... in one of the photos, it was like two shirtless guys at the beach. So maybe. Yeah, it's interesting. Most victims, though, didn't have things. Like, they had quite intricate cuts. But it's not like, aside from the first victim who had the penis in his mouth, it's not like their bodies were, like, rearranged or anything. No. Um, which you would assume if the surgical fetish was, like, his, his thing, then he would have done something fucked up like that. Yeah, very, very odd that we still couldn't get like a like a motive out of even the circumstances. I mean, there is still time for Mr. Rogers to let us know why. That's true. Maybe he's a podcast listener. Someone Maybe. write to him. I mean, <laughs> so so there was a there was a trial. So the, the trial was a bit weird, even though we have four bodies that were identified and traceable to Richard. The trial was run on the basis of Mulcahy and Marrero, mainly because the physical evidence, yeah, the fingerprints, trace back to them. However, they were able to talk about the other victims as part of the trial. The prosecution summed up the evidence against uh, Richard like this. Thomas Mulcahy, 16 fingerprints, 9 different fingers. Anthony Marrero, 2 fingerprints on the bag containing his head and another palm print. Peter Anderson, 17 fingerprints and a palm print. Michael Sakara turns up dead 27 hours after he's been seen with him. That's how he opened the, the trial. So it was a pretty clear-cut trial. Defence lawyers tried to bring up a, a certain narrative that potentially uh, Richard Rogers had just helped in disposing of the bodies and was not involved in the actual killing, um, but that did not convince a jury. He was convicted for the deaths of Thomas Mulcahy and Anthony Marrero. At sentencing, Richard was uh, given uh, the maximum punishment of 
two life sentences and he's still serving his sentence up until today and as of today no motive has been identified for the murders now he were in court he refused to speak i think yeah and there were no defense witnesses they obviously were pretty screwed like he was it was pretty strong evidence he was going down yeah yeah and interestingly uh i guess not talked about serial killer who had I mean, confirmed two victims, confirmed three victims, I should say, very likely at least five or six in terms of his his repertoire, which kind of puts him up there in terms of serial killings. It seems odd to me, though, that he just sort of stopped killing. Yeah. There's probably some more victims floating around in bags somewhere. And I, I do recommend that book, Last Call by Elon Green, if you're wanting... Uh, a bit more, not necessarily about the killings themselves, but more about like kind of the cultural atmosphere at the time that these killings were were occurring. It was kind of really interesting to read. There you go. We have the Sinister Sissies book club, uh, edition number one. Uh, I don't know. Maybe, you do try to end maybe it someone will maybe someone will want to want to join. And Jared's <laughs> accusing me of trying to wrap things up, so we're just going to leave it there. Thank you for listening to the Sinister Sissies podcast. You can follow us on Twitter at Sinister Sissies. You can follow me on Twitter at Jared Bartle. That's Jared with a Y. You can follow us on Instagram and speak to Sam at Sinister underscore Sissies. And if you'd like to help us out, we would really appreciate if you donated to our Patreon, where you will get after shows and early episodes. Until next time, though... Stay sinister. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.